Welcome, friends. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Lou. How are we doing today? So far, good. so good. So far, so good. Okay, yeah. good. Um, <laughs> we were having some internet uh, problems, friends. So today we're at a very important junction. Um, today we're going to be talking about a very important, and this is an introduction to the last one-third of the Gita, the final third of the Gita. If you remember, we have said that the Gita is written into 18 chapters, and Sage Vyasa, who wrote the Gita, broke it up into three, six chapters each, for each one-third. And the six chapters basically takes the form of the Upanishads Mahavakyas. Mahavakya is a profound statement. And each of the profound statements, each of the Mahavakyas of the Upanishads basically says the same thing, that you are that. You are Brahman. And this is something very, very important for us to all recognize, because if you recognize that you are Brahman, then you've won the game. You are, you are it. Um, so that's basically again and again what is being drilled into us. So the first six chapters of the Gita is Tvam, which is the one Mahavakya is Tat Tvam Asi. Tat meaning um, that, Tvam meaning you, and Asi meaning is or are. So Tvam is the first six chapters, which is you, and the second is Atman, that, and the third is is. So we have finished the first six and the second six chapters. We talked about the you. If you remember, Krishna in the second chapter spends a large portion of that chapter talking about the Atman. And that is all you. Mm. And the second uh, is the that, um, which is the Brahman that he describes. And now we're coming to the... To the um, third, uh, six. So we think of ourselves as a body. We think of ourselves as a body. We think of ourselves as a mind and an intellect. And we then think, think about this carefully. We think that there's a God within us, as if there's a cave within us in our heart and that God lives there, or that God is somewhere like a, a wisp of smoke within us as a soul. Whatever your mental vision is, you have a vision of something residing inside you. And actually, that's not true. Because if your body consists of a trillions of cells, each cell, the main life force in it is God. Mm -hmm. Without that God, without that life, you are nothing. So really, every cell within you, every microscopic cell within you, every piece of skin, every piece of blood, every piece of tissue, contains God in it. So where's God? All over you, everywhere. Not only you, but every living thing and non-living thing is where God is. And we'll talk some more about that. <clears throat> Sorry. So we think that Brahman is outside us and somehow we're going to get from here to Brahman and become part of Brahman. So in doing this, imagine an analogy, right? That Imagine a dream. Imagine you having a dream. Imagine that in the dream, there's you, there's your spouse or your 
friend or your family members and you're going from so time space causation takes place in the dream there's a certain amount of time that goes by in the dream and space you go from one part of the world to another in the dream and there's things that happen time space causation all of which you as the main protagonist in the dream are enjoying now mm -hmm. imagine that somebody could talk to you while you're in that dream it doesn't happen because the minutes up you're listening to somebody you're awake but imagine that i could talk to you while you're in the dream right and i say to you in the dream hey you know what this isn't true and you say what are you talking about <laughs> so all of this dream this is just a figment of your imagination so what you think i'm crazy it's so real look i feel it i feel it you know it's a dream it's not real so what do you mean i am me and i'm in this dream my family's right here my spouse is here my girlfriend's here my brother's here and look at me i'm holding on to this tree i'm on this ship and that ship is about to collapse what are you talking about it's just a dream you're not about to collapse nothing's happening to you you're in your bed fast asleep under the blankets <laughs> you won't believe me right right so when i wake you up and you wake up and i say to you that you will say to me that was just a dream it was not a good dream some parts of it were good but you don't believe that that could have been possible but it was right. all because of the underlying sleeping you that that dream came about now many people will find it hard to believe that maya which is the whole process of this whole world and it's a very deep philosophical argument that just as in the dream you're asleep and you don't believe that ultimately the dreamer the one who is dreaming is causing that dream to come about right that this whole world is all because of the underlying brahman that the brahman is projecting this onto whatever whoever sees it now you may say oh then i'm a figment of my imagination or figment no because you too are brahman there's a difference except that when in deep sleep and when you're unconscious even that disappears even the outside world disappears so we will right. talk about that when we come to chapter 13 but here this is a glimmer of what you're about to face in the next six chapters what do you think lu Oh, I'm excited. I'm so excited for this. Tie it all together. We've we've done so much work to be able to help tie it all together. Yes, we are going to tie it all together. Now, another example that is constantly given in the in the scriptures, Upanishads, and there's so many scriptures. The Gita is of clay and the pot. Now, imagine that you are a clay maker, a pot maker. And you take wet clay and you put it together and you make a beautiful big pot. See that pot behind me on that side over there? Yes. Mm -hmm. A pot. You made a pot. Now you say, that's a pot made of clay. And I say, well, which is it? Is it clay or is it a pot? You right. say, well, it's a pot. It's made of clay. Now, you say, okay, there's clay here and you touch it. And you say, every part of this pot has clay, right? Now, where's the pot? Well, the pot is clay. Now, does the clay become part of the pot? Does the clay and pot come anywhere in contact with each other? No. The pot is just a name for right. the clay. That clay has been formed into the form of a pot. Keep this in mind because these analogies are going to be important for you to understand as we go further. That pot 
is just a naam. Naam, roop, vyavar. Is naam is name, roop is form, and vyavar is function. Each one of these things has a name, a form, and a function. So this part is what you see as clay giving a form. Now the clay pervades the pot. The clay is completely the pot. The pot is just a name for this. Right. Now, the world and every inanimate object, every animate being is Brahman, just like clay. So we are really Brahman. We give ourselves a different name. We give ourselves a man, a woman, a tree, a stone, a mountain. All of this is Brahman, just like the clay and the pot. Another example that the scriptures gives is that of the ocean and waves. Right. All of it is water. All of it is water. But you look and you say, wow, look at that tidal wave. It is 30 feet high, 40 feet high. And look at this tiny little ripple. It's only six inches high. All of it is just ocean water. Mm -hmm. Another example, take gold and you make it into an intricate necklace fit for a queen. Goes all the way down, little beads, little holes, all kinds of things. You say, wow, what a beautiful necklace. <laughs> but it is all gold. All throughout that necklace is gold. And you say, well, does the gold come in contact with the necklace? Yeah. The necklace, my friend, is only a name for the gold. Underlying that necklace is gold. Okay, I'm beating this <laughs> ultimately to the end. Lou's laughing. Yeah. But it's true. You need to understand these things so that because it's so hard to comprehend Brahman or Asi, which is us, you, me, and Brahman together is, is us. So people think of themselves as a body, as I said, and God is within us when really the necklace might consider gold is within the necklace, but the necklace is gold. You right. are Brahman. Now, we're going on to another. I made some notes for myself. <laughs> and uh, so the first one I wanted to talk about is you and Atman and is. You are Atman. Second is duality. Okay, this is another very important concept. Duality is this whole world, samsara. Samsara and duality is very, very important to keep in mind. Subject and object. In this world, every experience you have, everything you contact, everything you touch base with, everything you experience is all subject and object. You are the subject. Whatever you experience, whatever you look, whatever you like, whatever you don't like is all the object, right? Mm -hmm. Subject and object. Now, when you have this duality, dual means two. Duality is two. In, in Sanskrit, it's called dvaita. Dvaita is duality. A dvaita, put an A in the front, Advaita is no duality, it's just one. Mm -hmm. So the Advaita philosophy says that when you don't have duality, there's no stress. That underlying all of the stress of your life, sansar, is the stress of the duality. Then that brings about raga and dvesha. That brings about likes and dislikes. When you have a subject and an object, when you're the subject and the other thing is an object. You either like it or you don't like it. Right. Because it either fits your needs or it doesn't fit your needs. When it doesn't fit your needs, you don't like it. When you when it gives you pleasure, then you like it. So that like and dislike causes you what is known as bondage. 
you're bound. And that is causing you stress because it is you're bound to something that says, I like it, therefore I want it. And that desire for wanting is what causes you to have discomfort and displeasure in your life. That comes from the duality. If there is no duality and it's just you, one, you are going to be extremely happy and no more stress. And wait till you hear the story at the end of this <laughs> today. It's going to you'll blow your mind. It's very, very nice. Can I ask so, about that? Is that please. the is that the what uh, distresses you is the thought of what could be if you had this thing or you didn't have things that you dislike. So yes. you always think there's another existence that could be, if yes. not for the like or dislike, right? Yes. So yeah. you actually, let's say, um, my wife is making coffee downstairs mm -hmm. and I smell the coffee and I say, I smell it, my sense organs, right? My nose smells it goes to my olfactory region in, the, in my brain, and it says, hey, I, I recognize, here's the key. I recognize that smell from before. If right. I've never smelled coffee before, right, I don't know what it is. So I say, hmm, that smells nice. I have experienced that before. I have a memory. So that's known as a vritti. A vritti is a memory of something that was pleasurable or displeasurable from the past, to answer your question. So I smell that. That vritti, it jogs the memory of a nice, pleasant experience from coffee, having drank coffee before. And my mind says, raga, love it. I like coffee. I Now get your organs of action into motion. <laughs> get your yeah. legs, stand up, walk downstairs, get yourself a, a cup of coffee, bring it back up, pick up your hands, another organ of action, put it to your mouth and drink it. I'll be, happier, be, if I ha I'll be happier if I have the coffee. Yes, I'll be happy if now. my desire is fulfilled. Right, right. If my desire is fulfilled, really the bottom line is the desire. As right. So yeah. if I don't get the coffee, I'm sitting here, there's noise inside my brain. My yep. brain says, mm, coffee, mm, coffee, <laughs> coffee, coffee. Yeah. And that noise becomes louder and louder. And in order to get rid of that noise, the coffee may not even touch my tongue, but it's just touching my, and already I'm saying, ah, oh. yeah. now, wait a second. The coffee hasn't even touched your tongue. How come you're saying, ah, just because the din, the noise in your head right. has gone down, you say, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, yes, it is because of the desire for the coffee or anything else that you remember from the past that is in your vrittis that you are getting the pleasure of yeah. seeking it. Now, let's say you've never experienced coffee before and you smell it. You're curious. Right, you say, hmm, that slime sounds like a pretty nice kind of smell. I don't know what it is, but it smells nice. Right. I want to taste it. Now that's a whole other kind of memory. That's a whole other kind of experience you would have. Or you smell something that you absolutely hate and you say, I dislike that because I've tasted it once before. So one is memory. The second is first time experience. You've never had coffee before. Somebody says, here, taste this. You put it in your mouth, you say, hey, this is good. What is this? This is coffee. Immediately, a vritti forms inside your brain. And you say, now I remember this. I'm going to come back to it. So does that answer your question, Lou? Yes. Good. So subject and object causes duality, causes stress, causes bondage, because you want that again and again. Only time there's no duality is, as I said before, during deep sleep. During deep sleep, you know nothing. So there's no, no stress. So what happens? You have peace 
you're liberated from all stress. Now keep in mind, very careful, your mind is under no stress at the time you're in deep sleep. Why? Because there's no duality. Right. So what happens? When people are under stress, automatically you think, hey, you know what, let me go to sleep. Yeah. If I'm in deep sleep, then I don't know any of this. So what do depressed people do? A lot of times what they do is they pull the blanket over their head and they try to go to sleep. Right. Or what do people do? They drink alcohol. They drink alcohol so as to put the mind to sleep or they take drugs, sleeping pills. Mm -hmm. So this is all very important. I, I wish I'd known this when I was practicing as a psychiatrist <laughs> because it's so clear now as you learn this that deep sleep causes no duality, therefore there's no stress. So the automatic response of somebody when they're stressed is to say, I wanna to go to sleep. Then I won't feel any stress. Now, where can you read more about this? There's something known as the Mandukya Upanishad. The Mandukya Upanishad is one of the many Upanishads that is phenomenal, very deep. And there's also, if you look on Google, there's something called Mandukya Karika, K-A-R-I-K-A, Mandukya Karika. And in 1932, <clears throat> a group of Vedanta scholars in Rhode Island wrote a thesis on the Mandukya Karika, and it's available on Google. So look that up. The other one is the Tattva Bodha, Tattva Bodha, and that was written by Shankaracharya. Shankaracharya wrote on the Tattva Bodha that describes the a lot of this and what we're going to be talking about in the next six chapters uh, in the Tattva Bodha. And Swami Sarvapriyananda of Vivekananda Center in New York uh, talks a lot about this. And a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today and the story at the end comes from Swami Sarvapriyananda. So when we realize that there is duality, so you may say, oh, that means that you're saying to me, all I need to do is to go into deep sleep, and then <laughs> that's when I get relief from my stress. No, there's one other thing. The knowledge that there is this duality, the knowledge that there is a subject-object relationship between you and things that you like or that you dislike, just that knowledge alone gives you some relief to make it from non-duality to non-duality. So Advaita from Dvaita. So, for example, um, there's so many examples. Which one should I give you? <laughs> <laughs> when I was about 20, 20, 21, I was you know, just a kid. You may say 20 is a pretty young man. But at that time, I thought of myself as a kid. My good friend, Dr. Diwan, and myself, we were in medical school. We went to a hill station in India, and there were no lights by sunset. Everybody had like little kerosene lamps in their home. I don't think there was electricity. It was in the wilderness. And they had this. And we were so excited our first night there. We said, let's go for a walk. Pitch dark outside. You could really not even see. There was no moon out and mm. the stars were hidden. It was cloudy. But being 20, we said, let's go for a walk. Now, right. it's very scary because it's a hill station. There's steep drops. If you take a misstep, you could fall down to your death. Yeah. But we were stupid. We were only 20 years old. We <laughs> went out for a walk thinking, and it was just the two of us. There was no adults. Other than, we were not adults. We were no adults with us. We went for a walk. 
Now we walked and walked and there was already this anxiety building us up inside. How are we going to get back? Are we going to be able yeah. to find our way back? Now we came across as we going there, I kid you not, Lou, we saw a ghost. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. In the distance, about, I don't know, 20 feet, 40 feet from us, standing there, tall, cloaked in white, and, and just looking, staring at us. My friend was petrified. I was scared. <laughs> yeah. Pitch dark, except for this white ghost standing there. And now here's the duality. Subject, object. Right. 20-year-old, ghost. <laughs> and he said, look, we just should just turn around and run back. And I said, but it's shorter if we keep going this way, because we came around in a circle around this hill station. It's much shorter. It'll take us like another hour to get back this way. It'll be only another 15 minutes if we go this way. Right. He said, but there's the ghost. <laughs> and I said, and, and really, I kid you not, when it's pitch dark like that and there's a thing there, you say it's a ghost. Now, fortunately, you know, for a number of personal reasons, I can tell you that I did not believe in ghosts. I was taught that there is no such thing as a ghost. Right. M my mother, my father had told me, and I was grew up in it. I had had my thread ceremony, so I'd had, I was a Brahmin, and I used to say my prayers regularly. I said, no ghost can <laughs> do anything to me. First of all, there are no such things, and there is no ghost, although I see it with my eyes. So my senses, right, here's my yep. senses going to my mind saying, that buddy is a ghost, I'm telling you. My eyes say that. My it's easy to says, say when one's not standing right in front of you. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my brain says, that's a ghost. And I said, no, I, my buddhi, my intellect says, there's no such thing. My mind right. says, that's a ghost. My eyes are telling me it's a ghost. My intellect says, I've been taught all along that there is nothing. Go walk towards it. Let's see what happens. Even if it's a ghost, it can't hurt you because right. you've got a thread, et cetera, et cetera. So my friend says, I'm not coming. I said, I'm going. <laughs> So I walked very gingerly, very slowly, but the ghost wasn't moving. As I got closer and closer to it, it turned out that there was a bend in the road, and this was the entrance to somebody's long driveway, which was a house. And this was a long pillar with a globe on top of it that somehow one of the lights from somewhere was yeah. shining on it and nothing else. <laughs> so it looked like a ghost. Right. The knowledge now, that it was just a pillar. I started laughing. The Dwaita went away. It was an Advaita. There was no longer the duality between me and this ghost. There was just nothing. It disappeared. And I, my fear was gone. Right. <laughs> so there was no stress. I said to my friend, come here, come here. It's just a post. And my friend came and we walked 15 minutes later. We were back home. We were laughing at the whole time. What do so, you think I'm thinking of right now? Tell me. The snake and the rope. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> very similar. Snake yeah. and the rope, snake and the rope, and all of this clay in the pot, the ocean and the water, the ornaments and the gold, all of this we misapprehend, mistake these things for what they are not, and that causes us stress. When we realize this and we see that it's not a ghost, it's just a pillar, it's not something that you're attracted to wealth, fame, power. All of this goes away when you realize what it is really. So everything in this world is seen as duality by you. And everything you experience is experienced in your mind. Now, here's the next thing that is very, very important. The mind and its relationship to your enjoyment 
as well as to stress. Okay, this is now the third one. The first one we did is that you and Atman is one. Right. Second one is duality. Now we're talking about mind and its relationship to enjoyment as well as to stress. So everything you experience is experienced in the mind. You may think you experienced it on your tongue. You may think you experience it in your skin as touch. And you may think you experience it by your ears, by listening, but you're really experiencing it in, in your mind. What's the proof? The proof is that, and, and one other thing that I'll mention to you, the more senses that are stimulated by a sense object, the more your mind gets titillated mm. and the more you get stimulated. Right. Okay. So, for instance, if I have if I have my eyes closed, bandage around my eyes, and somebody gives me a flower to smell, and I smell it, I said, hmm, that smells so nice. One sense organ is affected, right. not the eyes, because I can't see the flower. Take the bandage off. I look at this flower. It's beautiful. As well as I smell it, you say, oh, it smells so good. But the fact that it looks good also makes me feel very happy. Right. Now, take the example of a beautiful dish of food where the, some, you're hungry, Somebody yes. brings you a beautiful dish of steaming hot food and it looks gorgeously presented, different colors on it, looks nice to the eye, form, name, and function. Nam, rupa, vyavhara, it is to be eaten and it looks good and it smells good and it tastes good and it's sizzling. You know, what do they call when they bring those sizzling things on a sizzler platter? So it's sizzling, so your ears can hear it. Right. Four, oh, this is delicious because four of your senses are stimulated. Well, you now, also feel it with your mouth. Some people are very, it. yeah, some people are very, uh, yeah, texture is very important in food right, too. Right, right. Yeah. And, and those who eat with their hand, you can actually touch it with your hand too. Yes. Now, the scriptures talk about, the books talk about when there is two human beings, man, woman, man, man, woman, woman, you know, it's, that kind of sensual stimulation is at the highest level because not only are all five senses or more, because you even now start involving the organs of action, right? all those are affected because you smell the other person, you taste the other person, you're mm -hmm. kissing, you're touching, you're hearing the sounds. You know, all the senses are affected. Plus your mind is affected because right. you say, oh, I love this person. I love the way he talks, she talks, whatever. Your mind is stimulated, so you're getting multiple stimulation, and that is the highest. That is why the addiction to right. that kind of a physical relationship is far greater. Either there used to be experiments that we were shown when we were residents between mice when they were in a cage. You know, they would say, you know, what is more important to this, food when they're starving, or sex or drugs? Right. Right. So they would get them addicted to heroin or some drug like that, a, a morphine uh, derivative, or sex, or food. And believe it or not, the number one was the heroin. Hmm. And they gave up sex and food for that. And number two was sex, more mm -hmm. so than even food. Right. So, um, so anyway, those sense organs demand various kinds of things. So uh, the chapter 13 describes, and we will get to this, how space, these are the five elements, space, air, fire, water, and earth. F space, air, water, fire, earth. Mm -hmm. um, the five elements cause and create not only 
the outside objects, which they do, right? But in addition, they actually cause your sense organs. Your sense organs, your eyes, your vision, your ears, your sound, all of this is caused by these five elements in their gross form and subtle form. It's a deeper subject than, than what we want to touch on right now, but right. we will touch on it when we get into chapter 13. So just as a quick uh, thing, water is for taste because you can't taste anything if it's not some moisture in it. Right. Imagine right. something that is totally desiccated. Desiccated means all the water is removed from it. It's just yeah. like a dry powder and yeah. your mouth is dry with no saliva. You put it on your tongue, what's it going to taste like? Nothing. nothing. Yeah. It's going to taste like nothing because you can't taste. Your mm -hmm. tongue being so dry, you put something dry on top of it, you're not going to taste. You must have water in order for it to taste. So space, air, fire, water, earth, water is necessary for taste. The taste organs, the tongue, everything is based on water. Sight is based on fire. So fire produces light, color, form, and eyesight. And sound from space is for the ears. But where does it all go? It all goes ultimately to your mind. That's right. right? Yep. So the, um, take an example. If I'm looking out the window and I'm far, far away, I see a beautiful tree. The sun, if it's pitch dark, I don't see anything. But now, while it is daylight, I see a beautiful tree. And I can see the color in it. Suppose it was fall. Right now it's not fall, it's winter, and there's no leaves on it. But if it was autumn, fall, the leaves are golden, red, yellow, all kinds of colors. And I look at it and say, wow, that is such a beautiful tree. Now, what has happened? The tree hasn't gone into my eyes. The light has gone into my eyes. So what happens? The light comes from the light source, hits the tree, bounces off, goes into my, into my eyes, to my retina. And what happens in the retina? The tree doesn't go there. The, uh, the light goes there. Right. If, I'm, if I've got a cataract, I can't see. Does that mean that the vision was based on my eyes? No, because if the lens is removed and a new lens is put in there, it goes right through that lens to the retina. Oh, right. so you mean that the vision comes from the retina? No, yeah. because when the light goes to the retina, it stops there, but it hits the retina and gets changed in the retina from light to now little chemicals that go from one neuron to a next mm -hmm. into the synapses, go up to the optic area of the brain, and something happens. We still don't know exactly what happens. That chemical causes you to say, oh, click, 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 click. I see a red and yellow within. I'm saying click, click, click. It takes not right. even a fraction of a second for me to say there's a red and orange and yellow beautiful tree out there. How long does it take me? Fraction of a second. Light goes in through my eyes into the retina, convert to synapses, chemicals, goes into, go to the optic thing, all of this in a fraction of a second and the eyes perceive and tells my mind. That was the point that I was making. Then it tells my mind, you see a beautiful tree. Now, the mind and these sense organs work together and they work together. And now what I'm saying to you is the mind says, I want to go to that tree. I want to experience it. There comes a desire. So the mind is at the root of all these desires. 
Right. Same thing with the coffee that we were talking about before. The smell of the coffee comes through my nose, goes in the same way in through the chemicals and the synapses and the electrical impulses and goes to the olfactory region and says, mm, nice coffee. I want that. I want it. And that mind then turns up the desire for that coffee or whatever it is. And the, the mind also the mind also controls what you perceive. I always tell the story of two pe people walking in the woods and one person is seeing deer and birds and hearing the bird song and seeing all the beauty and everything. And the guy next to him is just swatting mosquitoes. All he <laughs> perceives is the mosquitoes because his mind and his desires are filtering what he perceives. Yeah. So the mind is very quick that way to, to, to decide what to see and what not to see. Right. So for instance, if I'm reading a book and my wife is calling out my name <laughs> again and again, calling me for something, my mind says, I am focused on this book. I'm really enjoying what I'm reading. And it blocks out. Right. Not that I'm ignoring her. I nope. really don't hear her. I don't hear her. And she may then come and shake me and say, didn't you hear me? <laughs> I said, no, I didn't. What, are you deaf? No, I'm not. The sound waves went through my ear, went even to my left, to the olfactory, uh, sorry, the auditory area of my brain, and right. I didn't perceive it. So the mind blocked it out. It wasn't as if I'm deaf. Sound waves went in there, but the mind, like Lou is saying, blocked it out. And it's, in uh, fact, in fact, we block out a large percentage of the data we collect, so the things that we see around us that we experience. We're only perceiving a fraction of it because the mind is selective about what it deals with. Yes. So similarly, just as it's being selective of what it's being dealt with, you recognize that the quality of your experiences depends on the quality of your mind, not on the on the experiences you're having. For instance. Right. <laughs> recognize this this is so fascinating to me i hope it's interesting to you too but how we how we don't recognize these things until somebody brings it to our awareness i am not that hungry and somebody gives me food to eat right and it may be really delicious food but at that time because i'm not hungry my mind says i don't feel like eating anything no 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 please son-in-law eat eat right you know how mothers-in-law are and son, please eat. I'm not hungry. No, you got to eat this. Try it. You like it. Eat it. It's okay. What? It's delicious. No, it's okay. Yeah. Why? Because the quality of my mind says it's not okay. I'm not hungry. Right. My stomach says, I'm, now starve me for 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours. Then put even, not even that, but just a piece of dry bread in front of me with right. a glass of water. I will eat that bread and say it is the most delicious thing I have ever eaten. Why? Because my stomach is hungry, therefore my mind is eager to get something to eat. Right. So the quality of your mind can adjust the quality of your uh, interaction with the world. Yes. Right? So same thing happens. Like in I said, the guy seeing deer and birds and the other guy swatting mosquitoes. Right. Same experience. It's just what their mind is, is presenting to right. them for the experience. Yeah. Now, wait until we get to the last thing, which I'm going to be telling you about, is what the yogis do. Exactly what you're saying, Lou. The yogis block out certain things, right? Like in meditation. Mm -hmm. And the Advaitis actually experience everything and still live with it. 
There's yeah. a difference. We'll yeah. come to that. So similarly, pain can be blocked out by the mind. So let's say I've had it as a psychiatrist. You you know from my previous uh, um, podcast that I did a lot of hypnosis. And mm-hmm. during hypnosis, I would use hypnosis to control intractable pain. And it was amazing to me that with the use of hypnosis, I could get people to block out pain completely. I said, how can the mind do that? Well, now it makes sense. The mind is the one that perceives pain. The mind is the one that can block pain. Right. And it's a whole other explanation. But just keep that in mind for now. You know, just when you're in pain and you get distracted by something, you look away. And for that moment, you forget about your pain. Right. So many say they cannot meditate. Even those of you who listen have often written to me and said, I can't meditate. What can you suggest to me to meditate? Can you have one session just on meditation? Now, the yogis will meditate to block out everything. So they will go into the Himalayas and they will sit because there's no distraction and whatever little distraction there is, little meaning ice, minus 80 degree temperature, (laughs) little distraction. They will block that out and say, I can block everything out. I don't experience cold. I don't experience pain. I don't experience lack of food, but I'm completely satisfied. I'm very much at peace. Now, Shankaracharya and his teachers say you should not have to block out the world, but work with it. You know, how far can you just run away from the world and go up into the... How many of us can do that? Right. One way is to shut down the mind and block out everything. The other is to block out the desire and understand the world that you're dealing with. So Swami Sarvapriyananda gives two examples. He says, assume that you're in a movie that is a very scary movie going on. And those who are yogis will say, I'm not afraid. Why? Because I'm closing my eyes, I'm meditating. And while I'm watching, while this movie is going on, I'm not seeing any of it. I don't experience it. Therefore, I don't experience any fear. The yogi does that. But the Advaiti says, let me see. This is a movie. This is not real life. It's not really happening. There's nothing to be afraid of. And so he says, I appreciate it as a beautiful movie. And I don't see anything to be scared of because I understand it's just a movie. So he goes through by the understanding. Now, last thing, and then we'll stop. I know I've gone on a lot longer today than we normally do. But this, I think, was very important for you all to know. So in the Mahabharata, there was a story of a king of Kashi. Kashi is uh, Banaras, very holy city, and he had three daughters. And the names are similar, Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika. Amba, Ambika, Ambalika. Three. And these three were in the Mahabharata described as the most beautiful women that you've ever seen and most beautiful in India. So he decided that he was going to get them married, and that's a whole other story. But this story that Swami Sarvapriyananda told is that of the princess of Kashi. Swami Sarvapriyananda tells it very well. What he says is that there there were many kings and princes in India back in those days at the 3000 years BCE. But there was a king who had a five-year-old son, a prince. 
the king's wife, the queen, decided that she wanted to have a play with these three women, Amba, Amba, Ambika, Ambalika, and one of the girls, they didn't have enough girls to practice, to play the role. So she said, why don't we dress up my young son, the prince, as a girl mm -hmm. and make her the young princess from Kashi. And so they you know, took this little boy, dressed him up as a girl, put all kinds of girl clothes on him and decorations and jewelry and makeup. And he looked so pretty. <laughs> and everybody said, oh, that's the prince up there on the stage acting. And so this happened. And when the play was finished, she said, you know, brought the court painter. Now, there were no cameras or phot photographers at the time. She said, please draw a portrait of my son as the princess of Kashi. So the painter drew a beautiful portrait of the prince, five-year-old boy, and wrote princess of Kashi and wrote the date on it. And, and then they put the painting up on the wall. The boy, the prince grew up. He became a very handsome young prince. When he was mm. 20 years old, 15 years later, he's a very handsome prince. And they kept saying, you're getting old now. You should get married. And he says, I haven't found the right girl. One day, nothing to do. He's walking around the palace. He goes into the basement and he's oh, looking no. through these dusty yeah. things. And he sees this portrait of this five-year-old child, looks at the date. He says, sees the date. He says, hey, I was five years old at the time. Look at this beautiful girl. This is such a gorgeous <laughs> little girl. He sees his own portrait and he says, I love this girl. This is the girl I want to find and get married to. So after that, he goes upstairs, sees his parents. They, he looks a little dejected and sad. The king and the queen say, why are you so sad? He won't tell them. He's shy. So then the, the minister of the church, very bright man, comes to him, says, son, what's the matter? What's, why are you so dejected these days? He says, minister, I'm in love. And he says, oh, yeah, who's the girl? He says, well, where did you meet her? I, I, I haven't met her yet. He says, well, how do you know her then? How, do you, how are you in love with her? So I saw her in a painting. He says, where's the painting? He says, downstairs in the basement. He says, it's a painting of a girl drawn in such and such a year. And the print minister starts to, we'll start right. the journey. He says, show me the painting. He takes him <laughs> down, looks at the painting. And the minister says to him, son, you got to sit down. <laughs> this the is going to be a tough conversation <laughs> the prince sits down and he says i gotta break it to you this princess of kashi say yeah yo you know her he says there ain't nobody like that said, what <laughs> that is you my friend me he says yeah when you were five years old your mom dressed you up as this and made you into this beautiful princess and you're saying you're in love with her now that's the end of the story but this is a book, the story in the scriptures, in order to let you know what happened to the prince at the time. There is this Advaita, this, sorry, this Dvaita, this duality between him and this object that he desires, right. loves, yeah. Raga. Loves her, said, I want to marry her, I'm not marrying anybody else. The minute he finds out that you are that, Tattvamasi, you are that, what happens? His desire disappears. He no longer desires that picture because it's crazy. He says, this right. is me. I can't be in love with myself. The desire just evaporates. And what Advaita says is that everything in life should be thought of as the princess from Kashi. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Great story. You can break yeah. it down like that to say everything. Now, friends, keep in mind this story and recognize that the reason meditation doesn't work for all of us 
is because you can't do that. It's not easy for us to meditate. It takes a lifetime of practice. You have to get rid of all your desires. This might be another way for you to practice, to say, if I can recognize that all of this, money, fame, power, and in the Tattva Bodha, Shankaracharya describes how to get rid of some of your desires. And we can talk about that some more. How long have we been now? Almost an hour? 44 Blue? minutes, yeah. 44 minutes. So yeah. I'll, I'll stop here and we'll come back to this. And I hope you enjoyed this. This Oh, it was me, fascinating. I loved it. I'm so glad you say that, Lou. You always make me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. And please, Lou, go say what you have to do in terms of getting people to write to us and their comments, their, their interest would be very, very important for me to hear. If you want to comment, if you want to talk with us, speak, interact with us, the Facebook page, Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist, go there. If you're listening to the audio podcast, if you just want to hear the podcast, take them along with you in the car or wherever you on your walks, wherever you want to go, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. But if you want to talk with us and we'd love to hear from you, the Facebook page, Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. Thank you so much. See you next time.